Another thing I've learned also is that before cancer, I viewed other people's like major life happenings as, oh, they just, it was so easy for them to shift their thinking or so easy for them to kind of change their lifestyle. And then I went through it and realized it's not. You're still like the habits are so ingrained in you and it takes intention. It takes effort. It takes <laughs> accountability and willingness and practice to, to shift. This is Intentionally Ever After. Join Intentional Lifestyle Coach Joe Bukartek for a series of personal conversations and coaching sessions with various people about how living with intention shows up for them. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Intentionally Ever After. Today, I'm very happy to get to chat with my longtime family slash friend, Nicole Goodrow Green. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to have you, Nicole. Nicole, will you kindly introduce yourself to the folks listening? Yes. So I am a therapist by career. Uh, I am a wife, a mother to one, and I am a New Hampshire native, I like to say. I live in New York, uh, but I bring with me a lot of New Hampshire in that I love the outdoors. I love the mountains. I love camping. I mean, that's a, a lot of how we spent our time as kids together. Um, and it, it really shapes who I am today. So yeah, that's a big part of me. I am a stage four cancer survivor. And that it actually has made me more intentional over the last couple of years, <laughs> uh, made me much more intentional. So it has, while it was challenging, it has changed my life in many positive ways. Oh, I, I'm very eager to hear that. Very eager to hear about that. So, so if we can launch right into it, what does it mean for you to live intentionally? <laughs> so, oh, okay, this, this is tough. I thought a lot about this. Um, I think that it requires, I was thinking initially that, you know, it's a little bit like mindfulness, but then I was thinking, well, not exactly. I think to be intentional, it requires you to learn mindfulness, to be mindful, to kind of be aware of what you're feeling, thinking, what is going on in your space. And beyond that, it also, I was thinking accountability. For me, living intentionally is a lot about living, you know, being accountable for my behaviors and for, for reaching my goals. And with that said, also, I think when I was thinking about what it means to live intentionally, I was thinking that I have to really consider it just for myself because I come from a very privileged position. I come from a middle-class family. I identify as heterosexual, cisgender, white woman. And so I bring into my space a lot of privilege and that influences how, uh, for lack of a better word, like uh, easy it may be for me to achieve certain things than other people. So how do you use that to hold yourself accountable for your behaviors? Hmm. That's a good question. 
I think for me, um, it's a lot of reflection as a therapist, as a wife, as a friend. I do, particularly for therapy, I do a lot of trainings, not just about, you know, the modalities like dialectical behavior therapy or EMDR, but also about undoing racism and reading certain books or listening to podcasts that challenge my thinking or open up doors that I wouldn't necessarily have been inclined to open. Listening to to people that don't look like me or haven't had the same upbringing as me. So considering different perspectives, is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah. Do you have a recent example, an effective Mm. example that other people might benefit from? Let me think about this. There's a couple of examples I can think of. I recently did a training on, I forget the exactly what it was, but it was talking about kind of undoing racism and becoming aware of white privilege. And it, you know, the woman running it talked about like, what is the cost of you not doing this work? And that really hit me because particularly right now with the trials going on, sorry if this is getting a little heavy, but particularly right now with um, George Floyd and, and Derek Chauvin and the trials going on, I have listened here and there to the trials, but I haven't listened all the time. It's incredibly overwhelming. And I think to myself, that's kind of a, that's a place of privilege to not necessarily feel like I have to listen to it fully. You know, I think that I can't speak for every person of color. My, my husband, who is, who is black, he has been listening to it nonstop and he cares very deeply about it. And I do as well. But he he has been able to develop this ability to listen to hard things and to sit with hard things that I haven't had to develop. And for me, living intentionally is starting to develop that more to really be able to to sit with that uncomfortability, to sit with that the sadness and the and guilt sometimes that comes up from it, and do yeah, do my own self-soothing. And that was another piece of the training that kind of came up was being able to self-soothe and not require other people to do it for me, particularly people of color, because that's historically kind of been what has been, I think, placed on people of color from white people is for for a person of color to tell me, no, it's okay. You're not, you know, you're not racist or you're not this or you're not that. And I need to be able to manage that for myself. It's not fair to put that on people of color. Why do this difficult work? Mm. Since you acknowledge you have the privilege to not have to, why do it at all? You know, I could say personally, it's because my husband is black and my son is mixed. Um, You know, he's black and white. However, if I look back to like when I was younger, well before I met Terrence, this has always been something that I've been very passionate about. And I just, I always have been, I don't know, inclined to uplift, empower 
other people and become aware of like ways that I might be hurting them or uh, like unintentionally, you know, engaging in a microaggression or a a racist behavior that I didn't necessarily think was racist. I'll stop there. (laughs) I could say so much. (laughs) Oh, that's great. I'm glad. I appreciate you sharing. What does the reflective process in in this context look like for you? Hmm. It's a lot of thought. I journal a lot. I, I really... I like to, I like to write, um, that way there, it's also not like putting the responsibility on other people. It's like, it's my own work to be done. Um, it's also having conversations, I think with colleagues, um, particularly white colleagues, I would say in regards to race, you know, sometimes having conversations with my husband, when he's, you know, when he's willing to have the conversations, because like I said, I don't want to like, that's not his work to do. It's my work to do. And having conversations with my family too, actually, is a lot of it. And also owning, I'm trying to think of like when I've had to, I wouldn't say that I've owned anything that I've done that may have been (sighs) racist to a particular person. Because when I think back on things like from high school, they're, well, number one, I'm not really in touch with the person. And, And also maybe I'm just not there yet. I'm not able to kind of bring myself to take accountability to that person yet. However, I do take accountability with other people when I have conversations about this. Can I ask, when you're referring to owning something that you may have done that may have been racist, that, that you haven't really done it, mm. it sounds like you haven't communicated back to that person about your ownership. But what about, is, is there a difference between owning behavior that you may have, yeah. may have done even before or without communicating it? Mm. Yes, actually. Yeah. I think that I can, to a degree, kind of, own it and change shift how I'm thinking about something or for example I'm thinking of a particular thing when I was when I was in high school this is embarrassing as it is to kind of acknowledge this like when I was in high school I was second in my class I was involved in everything and I applied to a variety of schools I ended up going to Fordham but I applied to BC I applied to BU and I applied to Columbia or no, I didn't apply to BU. I take that back. BC and Columbia. I didn't get into either of those two, BC and Columbia. And I was so upset and angry. And there were two people of color that I, I remembered who got in. And I felt so angry and wronged. What You know, thinking like, well, they only got in because they are people of color. And like even saying this, I'm cringing at that thought. Like now that I, I know better and especially as a social worker, I'm like, what, how could I think that? But that really, I think like speaks to just how deeply ingrained white privilege is in all of us and myself. And I really work to challenge that and other notions that may come up that are similar within myself because that's not why, <laughs> like, 
I don't know all of them. I don't know. I didn't know them outside of school that well. And I had no idea what they got on their SATs. And I had no idea what their, you know, family life was like. Who am I to say that? That's completely unfair. And it dismisses the qualifications that they do have to get into schools like that. Do you ever think about what you would say to high school, Nicole? <laughs> uh, it's, uh, let's see. I guess it would depend on <laughs> that high school, Nicole. Um, Assuming she's open to listening to current Nicole. <laughs> yes. Uh, she might not have been. She was pretty uh, strong-willed. I, I, I think she, she, she may. She may. <laughs> let's, let's, let's assume that for the purposes of this. <laughs> I would say, I would say like, you know, Nicole, be gentle with yourself. Like there's, I think a lot of that came from my own space of like not feeling like I was good enough or, um, you know, my own self-doubt. And so, you know, Nicole, you don't, you know, you don't know everyone's stories and, yeah, I don't know. I guess I would just I would kind of say what I just what I just shared really to that Nicole and to be gentle and to be kind <laughs> to herself and to other people. I think that's that's great advice, right? Especially I think that can be used in so many contexts considering that you don't know the entire situation. You don't know everyone's personal situation. Yeah. Right. A very simple consideration that would benefit yes a lot of people and a lot of interactions i think yeah and i think even like i'm like thinking okay you know what have i even said up until this point that may have that may be racist even still because i'm still doing all of my own work and you know people listening to this you know to this podcast they, they may be like oh my gosh what what she just said that and i i think a part of living intentionally and taking accountability for myself is t accepting the feedback or, you know, hearing people out and also reflecting on the past and what I've said, you know, and owning it and doing better, making a commitment to do better. I'm wondering about the habit question, if there's room in here to connect the idea. So, <laughs> it's interesting. There were <laughs> there was two two things that I thought of, like major habits that I've that I've changed that have made a pretty big difference for me. One is pushing past the fear of like making others uncomfortable about something. And, you know, like if someone, I'm very much a people pleaser. I, I have been for <laughs> a large part of my life. And that's one thing that the, um, you know, going through cancer treatment has really, and just like, you know, the, the idea of cancer and, and dying has brought up for me is, push past that fear and don't, um, don't second guess everything. Like, <laughs> um, and don't, you know, don't be afraid to share my thoughts and ideas, even if it disagrees with someone or, you know, may uh, within reason hurt someone's feelings. Um, and I'm not talking, you know, I'm not talking about race in, in this instance, I'm talking about something like, um, well, I guess it could be race. Like, let's say I'm talking to my, my family members, my white family members about race, and they may feel a certain type of way in response to what I'm saying. Um, not holding back, you know, being kind and being gentle in my approach, but also not worrying about their response or not allowing that worry to take over. 
that's a big habit that I've changed in so many areas of my life, even career-wise. Career-wise, that's especially made a difference for me. And, uh, you know, now in running my own business, <laughs> I have to be able to do that. <laughs> How has it helped you in your business? Oh, gosh. Well, I think that it helped me launch. Um, it helped me really, like, take the step out of working for somebody else and working for myself. You know, in being a people pleaser, I wanted to uh, say yes to a promotion or, you know, yes to more responsibility. And that wasn't working anymore for me. You know, being expected to, and the, unfortunately this is the career-wise, when it comes to mental health, the, the culture is that because of the you know, rate insurance pays, reimburses therapists, you have to work so much and it is, it's exhausting. And I was willing to do that for a time. And then, you know, after I went through my cancer treatment, I was like, I, I'm not, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> like, this is, you know, making a decision that this is what I want and no longer telling myself, well, I have to do this. I have to follow along with what societal norms are. I have to follow along with you know, a certain expectation. Yeah, sorry, that was kind of a tangent. but <laughs> uh, No, I think it, it led, I, I do want to circle back a little bit, but it, I think it leads to this perspective, you know, how this, yeah. this uh, call it a new lease on life or whatever, but you know, it sounds like you're no longer willing to do certain things. Yes. So what what have you said no to that has mm. made a significant impact in your life? So I think just that the when I was at the last place I was employed with, I was offered a promotion and a raise. And initially I said yes. And then then the pandemic hit and things kind of shifted and I was given the opportunity to continue with the way things were running and there's a certain number of hours that I was working, the certain number of clients I was seeing and people that I was supervising. And I said, no, I can't keep doing this. I need to take a step back. And that was really hard because I felt like, you know, my I was letting someone down. I felt like I was letting people down. But then I was I was actually being true to myself and I wasn't, you know, I was finally not letting myself down and not letting my family down. And, you know, I have my family to think of now too. It's not just me. It's my husband and my son. And, you know, and and wanting to really be present, you know, in the time I do have, you know, I, I'm not, saying that there's like a, a poor prognosis for my kind of cancer. You know, I'm in remission, thankfully, almost two years now. And they just don't know enough about my kind of cancer. So I don't know what the future holds for me. And so really trying to cherish what I do have now. And I have work to do on that. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I think that's like the one, another thing I've learned also is that I before cancer, I viewed other people's like, major life happenings as, oh, they just, it was so easy for them to shift their thinking or so easy for them to kind of change their lifestyle. And then I went through it and realized it's not, you're still like the habits are so ingrained in you and it takes intention. It takes 
effort it takes <laughs> accountability and willingness and practice to to shift even now i i constantly go back to habits that i want to get rid of what what reminds you that they're habits to be retired or that it's mm. that it's not no longer serving you i think for me when i start to notice that i'm feeling resentful towards something or someone that's a cue that I'm going back into old habits also I think level of irritability (laughs) because old habits typically lead to exhaustion for me I overdo it and then when I'm exhausted or I'm not eating, you know, healthy foods or making time to like meal plan or, or make those choices, I get more irritable. <laughs> so paying attention to that. And is it you that pays attention to that or is it members of your household that pay attention to that? <laughs> Probably both. <laughs> yeah, some accountability maybe. <laughs> yeah. No, that was that was injecting my own uh, personal situation into, into it. Just wondering, just wondering. <laughs> no, I guess I'm the it's only definitely one. no, no, not at all. Oh no, my son notices. He's like, <laughs> he says something. Mommy, why are you whatever? Like, <laughs> yeah, whatever. <laughs> Mommy, pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they know. They know when uh, something's off, right? Yep. How do you prepare yourself for something you consider to be a potentially difficult conversation? Hmm. I usually, I guess that it depends on what the topic is about, but for me, the difficult conversations typically surround conflict, some kind of like conflict with somebody. And because of what you already know about the person, what's happened or because of Mm. how they, how you believe they'll react. Because of how I believe they'll react. And also because of what has happened, maybe what has occurred. I usually try to go into, go into it, like thinking about my own stuff, like what I need to own in the conversation. And uh, I'm going to use a little bit of therapy jargon here. Like a lot of the time, how I think they'll react is my projection of my own stuff on them. (laughs) Um, And so I really, I try to remember that before going into the conversation. And sometimes, honestly, like I will, I'll write a letter or I'll type it out before I have a conversation because I feel like it's a little bit more organized for me. Because if I'm, if it's an emotional topic, if it's going to bring up emotions for me, I tend to get very disorganized in my speech. And so I try to stay organized because I know as I teach my clients, that like staying on topic is very important. <laughs> it can be really easy to get derailed. Yeah, I, I think that's very relatable. Yes, yeah. So, okay, so thank you for, for going along with this. So what happens, you're in the midst of the conversation, you've, you've carefully prepared, you've drafted it out, you've practiced your script, so to speak, or your talking points, and the curveball comes and wham, there comes the emotion. Mm. How do you how do you make your way through that? I usually pause. I'll usually stay silent. And sometimes, depending on who I'm talking to, sometimes they know I need to be silent for a second. Other times I will tell 
the person, you know, give me a second. I'm just kind of like processing this. I'm just, you know, I'm thinking about this. I want to be honest and authentic in my response to you. And I also want to be respectful. So just letting them know like what's going on, being transparent. It's like you're calling out the stage direction. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. It's like, please pause while I recalibrate my thoughts here. (laughs) Yes. Yep. I think that's great. Yeah. How effective is that? <laughs> um, I don't know. I think it's fairly effective. I probably, I think the pause sometimes is too long for people and I lose people. Because they're not used to it? Because they're not used to it, yep. Or because then the pause, like, then they start thinking or... Or maybe they're not. Maybe that's just because I do that. But <laughs> yeah, sometimes it, it doesn't work. The other thing I'm thinking I do, particularly with my family, because I don't have to pause as much with my family, I breathe. I just like notice like, okay, I'm getting, I'm getting like, I'm feeling heat. I'm feeling shaky. I'm feeling tense. Like, oh, I need to breathe. Like, like check it, Nicole. Like, <laughs> check yourself. It's okay. Um because I can, when I get emotional or passionate about something, I can come across very, I think, aggressive, and I don't want that. I, the message is lost, and it's just, it's not effective. Yeah, it it seems unfortunate that the message can be lost if if emotions come out strong more strongly. Yeah. Right, and it seems like it requires a certain heightened level of emotional awareness and emotional yes. control to to regulate that. Yes, everyone should be able to express and feel it. But one downside is other people then respond to that level of emotion instead of what you're actually trying to convey. So how does one overcome that? Hmm. It's a good question. I assume, I I expect you to have all the answers to all these things. (laughs) I think it's... I think it's also recognizing that other people are emotional as well, that other people are going to have an emotional response and that other people may be better skilled than you or not as skilled as you and being able to sit with that as well, like not, not continuing to amp up the level of intensity. I think, I mean, I'm trained to do this, to like, you know, to allow uh, emotion to come up. So I think I'm probably someone in my personal life who is able to do it maybe more effectively than, than someone who isn't a therapist. But really kind of being able to like hold space for that emotion, being able to like hold space for that anger or sadness or whatever comes up for the person, I think is important. Um, you're kind of in having a conversation with someone, you're kind of asking them to hold space for you. So also do the same for them. Because you're trained, do you feel like you have the responsibility to, to uh, maintain the emotional level of both sides of the conversation? Uh, that's an interesting question. I do feel the pressure to do that. <laughs> yes, totally. Am I like that in my personal life all the time? Definitely not. <laughs> Definitely not. How about you? No, no, you're not allowed to ask me any questions. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly why I asked it yeah. because I figured I knew the answer to it. Yep. Yeah, just curious though. Just curious. Yeah. 
Yeah, with, with great power comes great responsibility, right? Exactly. <laughs> you, you enter a conversation knowing that you have this ability, right? And yet sometimes you're like, I don't want to, I don't want to hold up. I don't want to hold back emotion. I don't want to hold, you know, sometimes I just want to blah. Yeah. You, yeah. Sometimes it's that like thinking like, I do this all the time. I don't want to do it when I'm home too. Like, <laughs> but it's important. It seems important. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so now I'm curious now for maintaining sort of, uh, not really balance, but mm. how do you, how do you let yourself? Yeah. Blah. Right. Given that you have the ability to. So hmm, for me, and this is not something I do consistently. I will preach this to everyone, my clients in particular, but <laughs> I don't always walk the walk, walk the talk. Um, working out is a big thing. That is a, a great outlet for me to kind of get out that emotion. Biking in particular. With this pandemic, I was able to, we were able, thankfully, to get a stationary bike. So I don't have to wear a mask into the gym. <laughs> I don't know how people do it. So biking or yoga has actually been really helpful. Um, as hard as it is for me to sit still, it is incredibly helpful. It's helpful with developing mindfulness, which is a lot of what I do with my clients. And it, it just, it brings down like that baseline irritability level to a, to a manageable level, especially if I start my day with it. <laughs> that, yeah. Okay. I was wondering about what it looks like. What's the minimum amount of yoga-ing that you need to do for it to be effective to have an, a, a result? Whatever you can manage. I think like, and I say this because I think a lot of people come into mindfulness and yoga with like, I have to do this much of it, or I have to do like, I have to meet this certain goal, which then it, it puts you in a position of being less likely to do it or feeling overwhelmed by it. And you don't want that. Um, so if you can do five minutes a day, great. If you can do 20, you know, I'll usually go on like YouTube and find free, free yoga videos. Some of them are more physical. Some of them are more kind of like laying there, I guess what's called yin yoga. I'm still learning a lot about yoga. And sometimes I'll do it like th three to five times a week. Sometimes I'll do it one, sometimes I'll do it none. I would say like three to five times a week is like a good sweet spot to be at. But whatever you can do is helpful. So uh, how much a pop? Like five minutes? Mm, I would say 20. Yeah. Try to aim for 15 or 20. Yeah. Because five minutes really just doesn't... Five minutes is good to like... Um, five minutes is good if you're doing like a guided meditation or something like that. But it's hard to find a yoga like video or something to watch that's five minutes. <laughs> they don't they don't really exist. Maybe ten, but even that's really it's tricky. Yeah, okay. it's not really a transition here for this next question because I want to keep asking you more about what we've talked about. But what what area in your life feels just about perfect? Oh gosh, well, <laughs> much like my clients, I am also a perfectionist. And <laughs> it's hard for me to say that anything is really near perfect. <laughs> but I would say probably hmm, maybe my business. And I say that, or my career, I guess. And I say that because I'm in a space where I finally feel like I can breathe. I have time to take care of myself. I... 
can, you know, <laughs> I'm going to say this and I, I still listen to other people, but I like being my own boss and not having to like be told what or how to do it. <laughs> and so being able to do that for myself is really great. I'm very happy to be in that, in that spot. Also, I think I just really, I, I really enjoy my clients. I really enjoy my work. And that is, be, you know, I'm able to, to do all this because I'm in private practice and, and because I am not accepting insurance because I do charge people out of pocket, which is a controversial topic in the field. <laughs> you know, the, um, for a long time, I wouldn't let myself go there. And I actually, I'm a better therapist because of it now. I'm a better therapist because I'm not seeing 40 people a week. I'm not seeing 10 to 12 people a day. That makes sense. So you're, it sounds like a bit of a win-win. Yes. Yeah, it trickles. I mean, it, you know, it's career-wise and it also trickles into my personal life. You know, how much time I'm able to, to spend with my family and how much time I'm able to self-care, particularly when it comes to food. I very much, like, I despise cooking. <laughs> I think, I don't know, I think a part of that is, like, me railing against whatever is traditionally, like, the female thing to do. So I'm like, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I'm very much a rebel. I always have been with that. <laughs> but now I actually enjoy cooking now. It's actually kind of calming and I feel so much better when I cook a meal versus eating out or eating in a rush or eating something processed. There's definitely a difference. Yeah. What's a, what's a good meal environment or a meal experience that you like cooking? Mm. Regardless of eating, we don't have to worry about the eating part. Like as you're enjoying cooking, what do you like cooking? Yeah. <laughs> cooking. <laughs> I like something with directions. I need directions. And I, usually like something that's going to take between like 30 minutes to 50 minutes that uh, doesn't use a ton of pots and pans. So I don't have to do a ton of washing after. Um, it's actually the, like the, um, I'm using Green Chef right now, but Green Chef, HelloFresh, all of those things. Um they're they're really helpful because it's already portioned for me so it cuts down on time and it's healthy so doing something like that yeah I like to and for a little bit I was following um like a meal plan and it gave me like a grocery list of everything I needed which was so helpful that's great that's great it reduces yeah. the decision fatigue immensely oh yes exactly exactly who is someone you admire and what do you admire about them? Hmm. This is hard. I admire a lot of people. I would say, you know, the two people that come to mind when I think of this are my husband and my mom. And for very similar reasons, actually, that they're resilient, that they're persistent, that they don't give up no matter what is like in their way, that they aren't afraid to speak up and to do something that isn't necessarily the typical thing to do. <laughs> my, my husband's definitely a little bit better at this than my mom, but <laughs> um, my husband in particular has a way of like <sighs> listening to people and having a conversation about something 
that he disagrees with the person completely on, but he's able to be kind and calm and gentle and really like be curious, genuinely curious. (laughs) It's an incredible ability he has. I wish I could (laughs) do it better myself. (laughs) Sounds like a great model. Have you asked him about this? Have I asked him? I think I have. And he's said like, I just like challenging people. So he sees it as challenging, but it doesn't come across as challenging. I think he's like trying to kind of get them also to maybe think about things differently, more critically, perhaps. Yeah. Well, those are two pretty good models to uh, to have. Yeah. Or it, are these things that you are you're trying to model that you want to learn from and be like? Or do you just like that they're that way and you don't want to be that way? <laughs> It'd be easier to not be that way. Because... Right. It's like, oh, that's admirable. I'm not like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's definitely easier for me to not be that way. Easier to like, you know, go with the flow. But um, I do try to do that. I do try to be like that more and more. And it gets easier with practice. Yeah, that makes sense. What do you imagine some people admire about you? Oh, gosh, this is always hard. <laughs> this is like... <laughs> um, I think it's interesting because what people have told me is not how I feel I am, but maybe I am. Um, like, my sister in particular tells me she likes how honest I am. And I think in some ways I am. Not in all ways. Because I worry about like how the person will perceive it or, you know, people pleasing really that, that prevents me from being hundred percent honest. But I try to, I think they probably admire like my authenticity and um, in particular when it, when it came to cancer and going through being diagnosed and, and the recurrence and going through treatment, I was tempted to not share with people like what was going on. And it's, um, everyone has their own opinion about social media. There's, there, it's, it's good and bad. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's a beautiful thing and an ugly thing. You, you don't have to take anyone's stance if you don't want to. <laughs> take multiple. I, yeah, I take both, definitely. You know, right now I'm kind of like taking a break from social media, but um it, personally a break professionally not so much <laughs> I, I have to professionally I need to be there um but I think personally I am able to remain connected to a lot of people on social media and I think we see a lot of a lot of like happy pictures or what's going well or um a lot of brags and listen I'm not saying we shouldn't do that yes by all means do that And I also think that sometimes it's important to share when things aren't going so well. And so I did share, you know, when I had my recurrence and I share occasionally, like when I have thoughts about, oh, like reflections, I actually do. I think I hold myself accountable, actually, like going back to reflection and accountability. I think I hold myself accountable on social media a lot because people see it. And I think that, and it's very it influences a lot of people. So if I can influence people, if I can have an impact, then I, then I'm going to do it. And I think 
people, people have said to me, like, they admire that I'm honest about things, that I'm honest about my struggles with, you know, whatever it is, but cancer in particular, and then how things are going well, like, and what I've learned from it. So I think even though when I was younger, I would say I was a pessimist, (laughs) I think that that's shifted and that's what people admire is my optimism or my ability to kind of get through it and come out on the other side. Sounds like your optimism has served you well. Yes. (laughs) Sometimes it's a little, (laughs) I can be a dreamer. How dare you? (laughs) Uh, Which is, you know, it's great for building a business. I need it for building a business. So what's the, what's the downside then of being a dreamer? Sometimes it's a little bit too unrealistic or like I need to kind of, um, I think I need a reality check every now and then. Why? <laughs> Cause that's what I'm told. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I believe that. I believe yeah. that. That's actually probably a, a large part of it. Is that's what that's what I'm told, and also because I do I do need like a little sprinkling, like a little dash of reality with what the dreaming. It, what does the dash do? A little dash of like or practicality. Dreaming, I think, dreaming is important, particularly if you're running your own business. I I, I think you have to dream, and you can't just dream. You have to do the work. You have to do something. So like taking action and also realizing that like, it's not just going to, you're not going to get there right away. Um, and it may not work out the way that you plan to do it in the, you know, the first time, like you might have to try again. So I guess that's kind of what I mean. So now what I'm hearing you say is dream and not dream, but yes. Yeah. So you're not stopping dreaming. Yes. But there's that added practicality there's that added action yes the resilience the consistency the persistence exactly and dream yeah yes exactly take that whoever was telling you to to stop (laughs) (laughs) that's probably in my own head (laughs) well that's fine that's fine it came from somewhere nicole Uh, yeah it's true (laughs) we we don't need to blame anyone that's fine good keep dreaming what other thoughts have you considered about intentionality Anything else you would like to share? Hmm. I think, I don't know. I think um, it takes practice and it takes, it's uncomfortable sometimes to be intentional or to follow your, to follow your intention. And I think sometimes too, you know, I was thinking like, particularly from a mental health perspective, like things get in the way of intention, things that, um, you know, intention, when I think of intention, I'm thinking like I talked about accountability, but intention isn't the only thing that's going to get you to reach your goal or the only thing that's going to like fix your life or, you know, like (laughs) make you happy. Um, There's things that you can't, that you may not be able to change that may have to kind of be radically accepted. And there's... You know, I think when it comes to like depression or anxiety, no level of intention is going to like potentially just, you know, help you out of that, depending on how, in, you know, intense and severe the depression or anxiety or whatever substance, you know, use disorder, whatever it is. And even coming up against like racism, no level of intention is going to fix that 
And so I think there's definitely steps that and accountability you can take within that, but other interventions need to be like put in place, whether it be therapy, you know, psychiatry, um, you know, some kind of medication or governmental change, public policy changes. Um, and I mean, I guess that, you know, intention can kind of come into play there and that you intentionally choose to, you know, go to certain governmental meetings or public hearings or um, protests, things like that. But it sounds like showing up and doing something beyond maybe the status quo, beyond what you're typically used to, one might typically be used to. Yeah. Taking the intentional mindset past the point of, oh, wouldn't that be great? Yes. And actually yeah. making something happen. Yeah. Anything else? <laughs> I actually had a question for you. I'm ready. <laughs> um, how do you kind of live intentionally and balance the space between, you know, professional business and personal? On a very pragmatic side, calendaring. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's, that's a very, yeah. Yeah. Logistical answer. Um, something I've mentioned in the past, I mentioned it's a lot of people cause it's, cause it's real and it's the answer. I have structured my life in a way to insist upon success, to insist upon intentionality. So, mm. you know, what I do for work, I work with people who want to live with intention, who want to live with more intention. And what better reminder is there than that, than having, mm. you know, three to 10 conversations a day about what it looks like for someone to live intentionally and to help them get there. Yeah. And you better believe by the end of my day, I'm going to be intentionally living the rest of it and planning out the rest of my week and month and year very intentionally. Mm -hmm. Other specific things, you know, prioritizing what is most important to me. Right. Currently, it is important to me to drop my son off at school. Mm. It is important to me to pick him up from school. You know, we're thankful that we're in a position where he's able to go to school in person. And so I insist upon that. Mm -hmm. I value my time and my commitments mm. to myself as well. And so, you know, from a health and wellness standpoint, I insist upon running. That's one that, that can come and go periodically and sometimes I catch myself or my son will catch and be like dad you're <laughs> it seems like you need to get some energy out so again those those live-in accountability partners are great but honestly th the reason I feel so good about where I'm at now is because I've tried so many different things mm. and I'm now at a point where I have a lot of things that work really well for me but the only reason I know they do is because I've tried, you tried them. them yeah yeah you gotta try mm-hmm and that's what I try to do with my clients is, hey, what do you want to try? Let's keep this light. We don't have to know the answer. It's not reasonable to expect that we will know yep. until we've tried it. So so I continue to try things when I feel limited by, oh, you know, I can't go out and run 10 miles or some long distance. Well, what else might it be? What else can I do to try and get the same result? So, Yeah. There you go. There's my answer. <laughs> I like that. And it's so true, trying different things and seeing what works for you. Because I say this to my clients all the time or potential clients is no one way works for everyone. No one kind of therapy, no one kind of intervention. Everyone is going to respond differently. 
Yeah, and I would suggest it changes cyclically and or seasonally, environmentally. Yeah, um, it does for me certainly. It's true. Um, as the weather changes, the school calendar changes. <laughs> things yep. shift, and it makes sense for them to shift. Mm-hmm. And so, just constantly checking in with, does this currently make sense for me? Yeah. And if not, what what might I do about it? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. As I Thank casually you. look over to my calendar over here. <laughs> <laughs> Cole, thank you. This has been really nice getting to learn a little bit more from your experiences and, and I really appreciate your, your insights and your perspective. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. This is great. Yeah. <laughs> you have a wonderful cool. podcast. <laughs> well, that much more wonderful now. Thank you. Thank you for adding <laughs> to it. You're welcome. This has been Intentionally Ever After. Hosted by Intentional Lifestyle Coach, Joe Bukartek. If you would like to have your own intentional conversation with Joe on or off the air, visit intentionallyeverafter.com. Thanks for listening.